Well, so far, 2022 has proven to be a year full of worries. There's war abroad, shootings at home. Meanwhile, inflation is skyrocketing, recession is looming, and we can't forget the residual worry a lot of people have over COVID-19. Since 2020, many around the world have been suffocated by anxiety brought on by a global pandemic. But it's not like worry was invented in 2020. Every year since year one, there have been countless occasions for fear and anxiety and worry. How do you deal with worry or how do you cure it? Anxiety can seem like a disease because it certainly affects the body. I'm sure you've experienced some time where you had great trouble and as a result, you were sick to your stomach, you couldn't sleep, maybe even got an ulcer. Now, we know that worry is not actually a disease of the body. It's an affliction of the soul. The world, having denied the soul, tries to treat worry with drugs. A band-aid at best, at worst, it makes things worse with all the side effects. The answer seems fleeting. Can worry be cured? But the amazing thing is the cure for worry has been around for a long time. It was found, I don't know, say 2,000 years ago. Jesus holds the cure for worry and even offers it for free. Whatever your status, rich or poor, whatever your your station in life, Christ's teaching holds the cure for worry. So we're going to learn about this morning. The only question will be, are you willing to take his medicine? Let's find out. Turn your Bibles to Matthew chapter 6. Matthew chapter 6. It's at the very end of Matthew 6 that we find probably the best known passage in scripture dealing with worry and anxiety. We just finished going through verses 19 through 24, where Jesus addresses wealth. His message is focused on the rich, those who are prone to store up for themselves treasure on earth. The rich are those most tempted toward greed and covetousness. But such a self-focused use of wealth is unfitting for the disciple. We don't live to serve wealth. We, We serve God. You can only have one master. You cannot serve God and wealth, he says in verse 24. We are those who serve God. He's our master, so we should live accordingly. Now, it's on that verse, on that hinge, comes the next section, 25 through 34. Notice verse 25 begins with this transition. It says, for this reason, I say to you. Meaning, in light of the fact that God is your master, now what? Well, he says, do not worry. Do not be anxious about your life as to what you will eat or drink. Do not be anxious about your clothing as to what you will wear. It seems as if Jesus is now addressing the poor. The rich are those who are worried about stockpiling wealth. The poor are worried about just trying to get by. But neither should be consuming drives. Both the rich and the poor, in reality, are are too prone to focus too much on self Whenever you take God out of the picture of your life, anxiety is bound to result. The rich and the poor both go wrong when they, they don't include God in the equation of life. The rich live as if this life is the only life and therefore they pursue luxuries to satisfy them. The poor live as if this life is also the only life and they pursue necessities to satisfy them. Jesus says no to both. Not even the need for food and clothing is a good reason for believers to worry. Why not? Well, precisely because God is their master. When God becomes your Lord, you gain a father, a heavenly father who cares for you. 
It is God's sovereign care for his children that eliminates the need for all worry. But temptation to take our eyes off of God as our father abounds. John MacArthur puts it best when he says, quote, The rich are tempted to become self-satisfied in the false security of the riches. And the poor are tempted to worry and fear in the false insecurity of their poverty. End quote. False security on one side, false insecurity on the other side. They both stem from not properly seeing God. And Jesus aims to open our eyes in this passage. Now I have to say for us as 21st century Americans that the previous passage probably resonates more with us verses 19 through 24, at least more relevant in the sense that we're all rich by the world standards, certainly by history standards. I mean, how many of us genuinely have to worry about food, water, and clothing? I'm sure there are some Americans in truly deep poverty, but I'm also going to wager that most of you have pantries that are perpetually full and wardrobes that have too much clothes. But that said, the command from the Lord not to worry about the things of this life still applies to us, as do all of the reasons not to worry. That still applies, as does the cure for worry. That still applies. Just because you've gained a measure of security in this life concerning food and clothing does not mean you've eliminated all worry. Chances are, the more you have, the more you have to worry about. You've got to worry about keeping all your stuff probably don't have to convince you how worries have multiplied in our modern age, but we we desperately need this word from the Lord. He holds out the cure to the poison of worry we drink daily, so let's see if we can find it. We're going to first read through this text, a long one we're taking all together, Matthew 6, 25 through 34, so follow as we read it together. Matthew 6, 25, he says, for this reason, I say to you, do not be worried about your life as to what you will eat. Or what you will drink, nor for your body, as to what you will put on. Is not life more than food, and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air, they, that they do not sow, nor reap, nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not worth much more than they? And who of you, by being worried, can add a single hour to his life? And why are you worried about clothing? Observe how the lilies of the field grow. They do not toil, nor do they spin. Yet I say to you that not even Solomon in all his glory clothed himself like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which is alive today and tomorrow is thrown into the furnace, will he not much more clothe you, you of little faith? Do not worry then, saying, what will we eat or what will we drink or what will we wear for clothing? For The Gentiles eagerly seek all these things. For your heavenly father knows that you need all these things, but seek first his kingdom and his righteousness and all these things will be added to you. So do not worry about tomorrow for tomorrow will care for itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. It's it's hard to miss what Jesus is saying in this passage because he repeats himself so much. Kind of unique, he repeats the command three times. Three commands not to worry. Starting in verse 25. For this reason I say to you, do not be worried. The word for worry means, what do you think it means? To fret, to be troubled, to be anxious. The way it's phrased in the Greek indicates stopping an action that's already started. So you could equally say, do not, or stop being worried. Stop all your worrying. About what? 
Two main objects in verse 25, your life and your body. Throughout, the same two objects show up, your life and your body, your life and your body. The term for life is broad, but in connection in verse 25 to food and drink, he's talking about just your physical life, being alive. And your body is in parallel with that, part and parcel with being alive is your body. He's talking about just life. And that really gets to our deepest worries. Is there anything more fundamental than worrying about living? And to live, we need food, water, and clothing. Jesus is certainly not saying we should not seek food, water, and clothing, but he is saying we should not worry about them. He's not denying our need for provision, just worry over provision. He means it so much, he repeats it. Verse 31, the second command, do not worry then, saying, what will we eat, or what will we drink, or what will we wear for clothing? Now, of course, you care about life's essentials. You're not wrong to do so. You even work hard to get them, and you must. But he's saying you must not worry over them. Fret, be anxious over them. You must not seek them first, as we'll learn later. Verse 31 has a different grammatical form than verse 25. Verse 25 was about stopping the worry that's already started Verse 31 just means that there's no place for worry altogether. It carries the force of never worrying at all. Don't worry about any of these things. If you're not getting the point, third time's a charm. Verse 31, or 34 rather. He says at the very end, so then do not worry about tomorrow. And to finish, Jesus expands the object of worry to include the future now. So nothing today or tomorrow merits the response of worry. He's forbidding worry among his disciples entirely. He's being clear. And what he says is as universal as Philippians 4, 6, which says, be anxious, same word for worry, be anxious for nothing. There's no exceptions there. Be anxious for nothing. Now, something's going on here. Why is this such a big deal to Jesus? This passage stands out like a sore thumb in the Sermon on the Mount because no other subject in the Sermon on the Mount receives this much attention. You might expect Jesus to rail against lust or anger or adultery or something else over the span of 10 verses, repeating the prohibition three times, but he doesn't. Nothing else gets this much attention. Why does he spend so much time on the subject of worry? The answer comes in his explanation. He is saying more, which is why he did not just bark the command, do not worry three times, and then move on. Worry results from a type of spiritual nearsightedness, a lack of spiritual perspective on what is true. Those who worry are so concerned with looking ahead that they forget to look up. You need to stop and look up if you would just Listen to God, trust his word, you would find no more good reasons to worry. But Jesus knows this is especially hard for us. We are fallen, earthbound creatures. So he's going to give us some glasses to correct our vision. He gives us here spiritual vision that we might not worry. Worry, it sidelines us in the race. That's why this matters so much. You spend your time worrying, you are effectively timed out of your Christian race. We have no time to worry. And so married to these three commands not to worry are five reasons not to worry. 
Jesus does not have to explain himself, but here he chooses to do so in greater length than anything else in the Sermon on the Mount because he knows we need this. And I would say as, as worry has only increased with modernity or modern age, we, we really need this. So let's give this our full attention now. Let's, let's look up and hear from the Lord now these five reasons not to worry. Three commands, they're straightforward. Now, the five reasons not to worry. The first is because life is more than living. First, because life is more than living. From verse 25, he questions, is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Now, to this question, those in the world would say, no. I mean, for life, what matters more than food and water? And without food and water, we die. So what, what could be more important than that? To sustain your life, you need food. To protect your body, you need clothes. In a fallen world, we can't live like we're still in Eden. We need shelter. We need covering to survive. So, so what, what matters more than food and clothing? Jesus is not saying that you should not worry about food and clothing because there's more to life in the sense of, you know, pleasures, luxuries, possessions. Don't worry about that little stuff. We've got big things in mind. It's clearly not what he's saying. No, more fundamentally, his point is you should not worry about uh, food, clothing, because there's more to life than, than living. It is the Gentiles who have a false view of life. He'll say down in verse 32 that the Gentiles, just speaking of the unbeliever, they're the ones who, who chase after these things as if, That's all there is to life. Not knowing God, they've reduced the meaning and value of life. To them, this life is the only life. You've got one life to live, therefore you must preserve it at all costs. You saw some of the same anxious, desperate clinging to life during the COVID pandemic. Among those convinced, this life is their only life. Not illogical, it's just their worldview is wrong. Now, of course, you should take sensible measures to protect your life and body, but the world has reduced man to a mere biological creature. He needs to be fed, watered, and clothed. So their most basic goal in life is to eat and drink. After that, we'll be merry because tomorrow you die. And that's about it. But as we've learned from Jesus, this life is not your only life. This life is not even your greater life. You do not have one life to live, but two Realize you're not the source of your life or your body. It didn't come from you. God is the source of your life and your body. Your life and your body both will return to him. All will then find a second life with God or away from God. But speaking as believers, what are we waiting? An eternal life and a resurrected body. So for us, there is actually a lot more to life than food and clothing. God has made us. He saved us eternally in Christ. And if that's true, what are you so worried about? Now, that being said, living here below, it's not like God doesn't care for our needs. Jesus is not telling us not to care for our lives or our bodies here. He he cares for them. Didn't he not just tell us to pray for daily bread? We pray for our daily bread. But as much as we value our lives and bodies, you must not become absorbed in the affairs of this life. You must not seek them first. Again, as we'll see later. 
God knows we need food and clothing to keep living here below. He knows that. Look, he's the source of greater things. Shouldn't you trust him for lesser things? That's the point here. He's the source of your life and your body, greater things. Should you not also trust him as the source of food and clothing, lesser things? Yes, you should. From an argument of greater, lesser, Jesus is telling us just trust the source of all things, God. Now, we're we're turning to that thought, but we want to keep moving here. A second reason not to worry, because worry changes nothing. From verse 27, because worry changes nothing. Verse 27, jumping down, he says, And who of you, by being worried, can add a single hour to his life? Worry changes nothing. Worry does nothing. Now, keep in mind, he's talking about worry. He's not talking about planning for the future. If you learn that a great thunder or rainstorm is coming, the house above or the hill above your house just burned down last spring, and so you're in the path of mudslides, you would be wise and prudent to start filling sandbags under the reasonable expectation a mudslide is coming. But you would be wrong to grow anxious and fearful over that. Such worry, that just that worry by itself does nothing to change the situation. When birds know winter is coming, they don't sit around and freak out and get all worried. They do, however, start migrating south in great prudence. And I'm pretty sure they do so worry-free. Jesus is not forbidding preparation, just worry. Not forethought, just anxious thought. Because worry, it doesn't do anything. Nothing good, that is. Specifically, he points out how worry does not add a single hour to your life. Many today have become quite obsessed with extending their lives. How, How much can they stretch this life? Believing that this life is the only life, they they cling to it desperately and they want to extend it as long as possible. And as endless articles pop up promising practices to prolong your life, they they digest them all. They'll take them all and put them all into practice. The latest fad, you know, avoid overeating, exercise daily, don't smoke, don't drink, maybe drink a little, try turmeric, right? Get plenty of sleep. Ironically, most of these lists about how to live longer say avoid stress and anxiety. But chances are the people reading these lists are doing so because they're stressed and anxious about getting old. But all such worry is futile because it it changes nothing. God made us, and even more so, you realize he has fixed the number of our days. He's determined every single heartbeat you get, you'll get not a single one more. Psalm 139.16 says, In your book were written all the days that were ordained for me, when as yet there was not one of them. This does not mean it's wrong to exercise or eat healthy. Both our lives and our bodies are precious and to be preserved. But don't worry yourself to death. And that's all you get when you worry. You realize when someone's hyperventilating, people never say, hey, stop it, you're going to worry yourself to life. They always say you're going to worry yourself to death because we all know that's what comes when you worry. Humanly speaking, worry only shortens life. How many countless studies have just plainly observed the connection between those given to worry and disease and shorter lifespans? They suffer more from stomach ulcers to hypertension. 
the very, it's another irony, the very desperation to live long robs people of long life. In the end, worry is a thief. It only steals time. It's not going to give you days, hours, minutes. It's really just going to take them away from you. It steals life in quantity and quality. And like I said before, you're going to find yourself benched in the Christian race if you give in to this worry. You're going to be sidelined. You're so worried about what's over that next hill, you just stop running. You become ineffective. It's futile. Would you ever take a drug that has zero benefits, but then a long list of really serious side effects? I trust not. Who, who would do that? But how often do we pop the pill of worry? We stay up late at night. We're pacing around, thinking about something as if that's doing something. It's doing nothing. It's changing nothing. Don't worry. Worry changes nothing. Thirdly, because you don't know the future. A third reason Jesus gives not to worry, because you don't know the future. Jumping down to the last verse, verse 34. He says at the bottom, do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will care for itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. You want an interesting exercise? Just write down on a piece of paper all of your worries, or at least everything that tempts you to worry. I'm sure we all would have a very long list. Now separate that list into two columns. The worries that belong to today and the worries that belong to tomorrow in the future. I would safely wager that your tomorrow list of worries is vastly longer than your today list of worries. And you you double down on that. Take your tomorrow list, your future worries, track those over a year. How many came true? How many fizzled away? They never actually were realized. I would again safely wager that the vast majority of your future worries never come to be. They're, They're vain to worry about. You don't know the future. Having lived through Y2K, I remember vividly what has to be the the greatest global worry that never came to be. The young people are not laughing. They don't understand. (laughs) But just just trust me. People literally thought that when the clock struck midnight, January 1st, 2000, planes would be falling out of the sky. You remember this. But nobody knows the future. You you can't see tomorrow. Therefore, you, you shouldn't worry about it. Verse 34, Jesus gives two sub-reasons. First, he says, tomorrow will care for itself. He personifies the future. Let the future do all the worrying. Let the future pull out its hair and stay up late at night. You, you just sleep easy. Can't you trust God for the worries of tomorrow? His grace is sufficient for all that we need, but he's going to give it to you one day at a time. You get the grace you need for today, not for tomorrow. You've got to wait till tomorrow for that. But will you trust that there will be enough manna on the ground to sustain you when you wake up tomorrow? There will be. He'll give you daily bread. Trust him. The second reason, verse 34, each day has enough trouble of its own. Now He's not saying, like, you've got enough to worry about today. Don't worry about tomorrow because you shouldn't even worry about today. But it's likely you have plenty of trouble each day. Surely that will tempt you to worry. You have your hands full battling off today's temptations to worry. So you you just can't afford to be fighting off tomorrow's temptations to worry as well. That's too much. That enemy is too much for you. That's how you lose the battle today. You're too busy fighting tomorrow's potential enemies. Learn to live one day at a time. Again, this doesn't mean we don't plan for the future. You get what he's meaning. One day at a time. Tomorrow, 
is behind a thick veil you can't see behind it. You might have some expectations, even plans, but you can't for the life of you ever see behind tomorrow's veil. Now, you can spend all day today worrying about what's behind tomorrow's veil, but if you just stop and look around, there's a lot to do and deal with now that you have passed through today's veil. So just focus on that. You need all of your energy to defeat today's temptation and to overcome today's trials. So do not worry about tomorrow. You've got plenty for today. Tomorrow is just going to have to wait. Number four, because God is your father. Don't worry because God is your father. We come now at really the biggest reason not to worry Jesus gives. Because we have a, a father, a God who is our father in heaven And he cares for us. Jesus now argues from the lesser to the greater. Showing how God cares for lesser creatures. Certainly he will care more for us. Back to verse 26. He says, look at the birds of the air. That they do not sow, nor reap, nor gather into barns. And yet your heavenly father feeds them. Are you not worth much more than they? He's pointing to the animal kingdom. Specifically birds. And look how God providentially provides for them. God never commanded animals to till the soil. His plan was for them to be fed just from the land. And they always have been. In fact, how much do birds get fed by our labor? We till, we plant, we grow, and they come along at harvest time and take it all. We've got a row of berries planted. I just had to put down some bird netting because they literally have been stealing the fruit of my labor. Now, I don't worry, they'll be fine. But God made them to seek their, their daily bread, their, their daily worm. And he will provide just that. Just like back in chapter 5, verse 45, it says that God causes the sun to rise, the rain to fall. So God causes the birds to find food. God gets the credit for feeding the birds because he's the creator and sustainer of all things. Jesus knows very well birds have to go out, fly around, hunt, find their food. But God ensures they will do so through the systems and causes, natural cycles he upholds. Birds live in God's world under God's care. They're fed daily and they don't worry. The point is in verse 26 though, are you not worth more than birds? Our world can no longer say yes. We can still say yes. You are worth more than birds. You're made in God's image. Birds are not. And for those who are redeemed, God is your father. Not true of the birds, your heavenly father. Verse 26, Jesus did not call God the heavenly father of birds. In that covenant sense, he is your heavenly father. The obvious point is that if God providentially cares for the birds, which are lesser creatures, will he not much more so providentially care for you, for your needs all the more? Therefore, don't worry about food, about your daily bread. Also, don't worry about clothes. Verse 28, he says, And why are you worried about clothing? Observe how the lilies of the field grow. They do not toil, nor do they spin. Yet I say to you that not even Solomon in all his glory clothed himself like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which is alive today and tomorrow is thrown into the furnace, will he not much more clothe you? Now, back then, clothing could be a major source of worry. Many people only possessed the clothes on their back. If they lost that, 
They'd be in dire straits, especially their outer garment, which was like their blanket for winter. But Jesus still says, don't worry. Look to the lilies of the field. All the wildflowers that likely would have been peppering the hills of Galilee around them as he taught. Everyone recognizes the unparalleled natural beauty of flowers. This is why the the floral industry in America is worth $12 billion. Yet these flowers exert no special effort to clothe themselves. No toiling, no spinning, no weaving is required. Solomon, the great king, had to do that. He had to employ a small army of people to make his clothes, his royal robes. Any article of clothing, but especially fine clothing in the ancient world, was an an intensely painstaking process. I think this might be the greatest thing we take advantage, or take for granted today, rather, just the access to cheap, abundant clothing. You've never once thought about making clothes. But who is responsible for the glorious garb of flowers? Jesus says, God is. Verse 30, God so clothes the grass of the field. His world is under his care and the natural systems he has made. And then Jesus makes a similar point. Since you are much more valuable than flowers, don't you think God will ensure you are clothed as well? Your needs taken care of? He, he makes this point by showing how transient the life of a flower is compared to us. Their beauty is real, but it can fade in a day. Just takes one scorching wind in the land of Palestine for the flowers to completely wilt, at which point they're only good for kindling in, in the fire. And this is my biggest problem with flowers. You spend all this money on Mother's Day and they don't even last a week. <laughs> but if God would see to it that flowers would still be clothed beautifully, though short-lived, how much more will he clothe you? He cares more about you than flowers. And that's the point. Don't worry. Because God, your Heavenly Father, cares for you more than you know. He knows all your needs. We're talking all your needs. And he will provide for your needs. Verses 32, 33. He says, for the Gentiles eagerly seek all these things. Talking about food and clothing. For your Heavenly Father knows that you need all these things. But as for you, seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. And all these things will be added to you. See that, verse 32, it says, God God knows what you need. Just like back in chapter 6, verse 8, even before you pray, he knows what you need. He's not surprised. You're not informing him. He fully knows you need food and clothing if you're going to keep living this life. He says in verse 33, all these things, they're going to be added to you as you seek first his kingdom. God will care for your needs, Verse 32, he says, it's the Gentiles, again, like the unbeliever. They're the ones desperately clinging to life and searching for these things. They're not striving after God, but food, but clothing. Because they're, they're living for this life. They're living for self. This life, it's, it's the only life they have, they think. And so their basest, strongest desire is just mere survival. And they're often burdened with anxiety over it. Because it's a fallen world, it's, it's not easy just to survive sometimes. And it's not like their gods will help them. Their gods are not providers. There's some Hindus in India who give daily food offerings to a monkey god deep in the forest. 
Their God does not provide food for them. He takes food from them. But, you know, in reality, you know who ends up eating all the food they bring? Monkeys. Like literal monkeys come in from the forest and eat all the food. I mean, with God, God's like these. No wonder they're hopelessly burdened and striving for the things of this life. Now, to clarify, Jesus is not telling us not to seek these things, food and clothing. We do seek them. We must. If you misunderstand what Jesus is saying, you might get the impression that you don't even need to work. Just manna and clothes will just fall from heaven to provide. That's not the promise. The point is, just as God provides for the birds, he will provide for his children. How does he provide for the birds? Through providence, through secondary causes, that includes work. But Jesus is prohibiting worry, not work. Jesus knows that that birds must work, search, hunt for food. But it is God's providence that assures their ability will meet opportunity they will be cared for. And it is the same for us. The birds are not used as an example of idleness, but of freedom from worry through dependence on God as their provider, as they work. We're not being promised manna from heaven here. Just like Deuteronomy 8.18 says, we know God is the one who gives us the ability to make wealth, to provide for ourselves. Knowing that God has commanded mankind to till the ground, if you don't work, you, you don't eat. Literally, 2 Thessalonians 3.10 says the one who does not work should not eat. But we can work without worry like the bird, trusting God's providence to provide what we need. This gets at the heart of of Christ's message here, looking at verses 31 through 33. You can see how worry and seeking are really used in parallel. What you worry about is that which you desperately seek. Seek first. It's not a problem for us to seek food and clothes. That's not the problem. The problem is when we seek first food and clothes. When we worry about food and clothes. We get that for the Gentile. I mean, they're living for self. This is their only life. But for us, God is our Heavenly Father. He's made us. He's bought us with a price through the redemption that's in Christ Jesus. Therefore, we we don't even live for self anymore. Verse 34 or uh, 24, you can only serve one master. We've chosen Christ. Christ is our Lord. He's our master now. We live for him knowing this life is not our only life. And so it's not for us to seek first this world or the things of this world. We still seek them, but certainly not first. We are to seek first him And so it all comes down to this, a fifth reason, because you live for something else. A fifth reason Jesus gives not to worry, because you live for something else. Back in verse 33, he tells us, seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. All these things will be added to you. Seek there, it's the same root term for verse 32, how the Gentiles eagerly seek after these things. Here though, this is further intensified by the adverb first, seek first, strive after this, live for this. What? Not food and clothes, but his kingdom, his righteousness. That is what we are to live for first. Kingdom refers to the exercise of God's rule. We've been made members of this kingdom. Its fullness is yet to come, but we want to see God's reign expressed even now 
So we seek the exercise of God's rule in our lives through greater obedience. Did not Jesus say, he who loves me will keep my commands? We want to see more of our lives brought into conformity with his lordship. And we seek the exercise of God's rule in the world through evangelism. We're to be salt and light. And, and witnessing the gospel of the king that others might find the narrow way. We seek the kingdom. We're also to seek God's righteousness. The righteousness that has been imputed to us is to be increasingly evident in our lives. And again, in the world, Jesus, remember he taught us earlier in Matthew 6 to pray for our daily bread. We pray for our daily bread, but only after we pray what first? Your kingdom come, your will, your righteous will be done. We pray that first. You are to seek the things of the Lord first. This is an essential part of discipleship. This is a consequence of being redeemed. Everyone has some purpose in life, some reason for living. It's a driving force behind all they do, an undercurrent secretly motivating them for their decisions, their actions. And we've seen that for the Gentiles, their deepest purpose is just to stay alive. At the end of the day, that the deepest furthest down purpose is to stay alive. But you have actually very little control over that in a fallen world, which is why they're often just plagued with worry. It's not hard to, or not easy always to survive. But even for us, Jesus is saying even survival is no longer our number one purpose. You know, why not? Because we're already dead. Right? We died in Christ. Don't you know Romans 6, 8, we have died with Christ. Romans 6, 6, our old self was crucified with him. If you are in Christ by faith, your old life, BC, is, is dead and gone. Like you, you died. Erect a tombstone over your old life, it's, it's gone. Jesus died to purchase you. In addition to forgiving you, to purchase you, to redeem you with the precious uh, blood of, well, of him, of, of the lamb. You don't even belong to you anymore. That's the point. We're, we're repeatedly called slaves of Christ. And so every heartbeat you get after salvation belongs to him. You're on borrowed time. And your new life now, for however long he gives you now here below before the second world, is to be used for his purposes first. Is this not part of the call to faith? Mark 8, 34, Jesus said, if anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. When he says, take up your cross, that was not seen as an instrument of suffering, but an instrument of death. There's only one end when you go to a cross. The Romans crucified tens of thousands of people. It's death. It's a means of execution. You have to die to self to follow Jesus, as he clarifies in the next verse, Mark eight thirty five, He says, forever wishes to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. See, that's what saving faith actually is. It's total surrender of your whole life to Jesus, not partial surrender, total surrender of your life, your will, your destiny, your plans, you name it, to Jesus. He's the only Savior who died on the cross and rose from the dead to pay the penalty for your sins. He's the only one who can save you from the wrath to come and grant you eternal life. 
If you're here this morning, you're still chasing things here below, lost in the rat race of this life. I mean, repent and turn to this Jesus. Submit to him and trust your life to him. Cry out to him. Believe in him. Be saved. And when that happens, it, it changes everything. Because you know, we didn't just die with Jesus. We also rose with him to new life right now. Your eyes are opened. This new life gives us a new vision for, for what is true. And it brings into focus the two worlds. This life and the life to come. Now concerning the future, now in Christ, and we got no reason to worry. We know we're secure. By grace, we've received an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled. It's reserved in heaven for you, 1 Peter 1.4. Our undeserved place with God forever is guaranteed and secured by him. So we can easily say with confidence, like Paul says in 2 Timothy 4.18, the Lord will rescue me from every evil deed, and he will bring me safely to his heavenly kingdom. We can say that, no problem. Well, what do we have to worry about regarding the second world? With new eyes, we can see clearly that world. We can long for it. And until then, we can also see clearly this world and how we're meant to conduct ourselves while we're still here. And that is by faith. Ultimately, fundamentally by faith, which is about trusting in the promises of God. Where you believe him so much, that's how you live. Galatians 2.20 It says, I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. I mean, however many days we have left in the flesh, meaning this life until you die. However many days we are to live them, he says, by faith, not by sight. We don't make our decisions by what we see, but by the unseen, by what has declared, the Lord has declared true by his word. And hence, we seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. We're going to devote our lives to worship, to walk, to witness for his name's sake. And like the Gentiles, our our number one goal is not simply just to stay alive, because we know this life is fleeting. This life will end. Everyone's going to pass through the final veil. You don't know which veil is the last one, but everyone's got a last one and you're going to pass through it. And then you find the next life. This does not mean we hate this life or we squander this life. We cherish this life and our bodies and we sensibly strive for food and clothing all the while trusting God's providence to provide, of course, but we just can't cling to this life anymore. We can't seek it first. At the end of the day, even birds die. Flowers fade. This life will come to an end. You must accept that now. But we know by faith that however many days we have left written in God's book, he'll care for us. Every single day you have left in the book, he will care for you. What do you got to worry about? We don't know the time frame. We are to live each day, one day at a time, trusting him, living sensibly, righteously with his kingdom in mind. And that, that is the very mindset that frees us from all worry. That is the cure to worry. It's, it's this 
Seeking the kingdom first, heavenly mindset. And when you do this, when you put on this, this mind of Christ, you really, you find remaining no good reasons to worry. By no means does this mean we're entitled to a trouble-free life. Just the opposite. We know all too well, verse 34, each day has enough trouble of its own. We know we will have a lot of trouble in this life. We will suffer. We might even lose access to food and clothing. Paul did. 2 Corinthians eleven twenty seven. he's relating his many sufferings, a long list of sufferings. He, near the end, he says how several times he was without food and water and covering. He was in exposure. Trouble will come in a fallen world. But even that does not give us a good reason to worry. Seeking the kingdom first gives us perspective even behind life's troubles. Whenever we suffer, when we're deprived, we are to act responsibly while trusting God to deliver. He does so through ordinary means, sometimes through extraordinary means. We may suffer trials. Even that is part of God's provision because he's preparing us not just for this life, but for the life to come. God is always working with our eternal good in mind. We know, as 2 Corinthians 4, 17 says, for momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory, far beyond all comparison, while we look not at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. The things which are seen are temporal, but the things which are not seen are eternal. I mean, haven't you already seen all of this proven at the cross? And the degree to which you worry will be to the, the degree to which you fix your heart, your eyes, your mind on the things seen. So look, if God has ordained this day to be my last day because of drought or famine or war or disease, well, so be it. I mean, what is that to me? I already died. I already died. Now we can say with Paul, Philippians 1.21, to me, to live is Christ. To die is gain. Uh, it doesn't sound like a reason to worry. It kind of sounds like a reason to rejoice, which is just what Paul said in Philippians 1.23, that desire to depart and be with Christ, he says, is very much better. But if not, he says in Philippians 1.22, if we are to live on in the flesh, you know what that means? That just means more fruitful labor. It sounds like a win-win. It sounds like either way, there's no reason to worry. Now, I know all this can sound quite radical, but you realize faith is radical. True saving faith is radical. Now, we know to the world, we seem totally crazy because we're going to spend, and they would say, waste this whole life for the unseen. And what can we say to that other than the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing? They won't understand this. But to us who are being saved, we know that Christ is the wisdom of God and the power of God. We know there is a God. He set eternity in our hearts. There's more than this life. We know this. We also know there is a judgment coming. That Christ died to save us. That salvation is available only by faith in him. And faith is a total surrender of your life to him. So lay down your life before this Lord. When you do that, you find the cure for worry. And as you walk by faith, you experience the cure for worry. We're saved by faith. We live by faith. Now walk by faith. 
And that's how you become totally free from worry. You get to live in just peace, contentment, the attitudes that are required to be quite useful for the kingdom, by the way. Now, maybe you're here this morning as a believer. You know, you still have a hard time not worrying. Maybe you agree and believe with everything the Lord says, but it's just hard to get there. And do you want to know why? Jesus tells us right in the middle, verse 30, when he says, you of little faith. You might have real faith, genuine faith, but if you're seriously being choked by worry, the Lord Jesus is the one who's going to diagnose your problem. You just have little faith, tiny faith. The answer for you then, for all of us, is to grow in faith. That's something every believer needs to perpetually do. You understand, Jesus, he has to tell us, seek first the kingdom, because he knows all too often we don't. We don't seek first the kingdom. We do worry because we don't always walk by faith. And that's what needs to change. There is good news. First, it only takes a little faith to save you. Faith, you might say, the size of a mustard seed, if it's genuine in Christ, it saves. Secondly, I guess we're in good company because all of the disciples had little faith. Right? Four other times Jesus uses this phrase, you of little faith. Every time it's toward his disciples because of their doubt, because they did not trust him. But just as the faith of those disciples grew from saplings to cedars, so can yours. All faith starts off as a sapling. It can grow. How? Well, foremost, pray. Pray to God. Like the disciples said in Luke 17, 5, Lord, increase our faith. It's a dangerous prayer. You just might get it answered. But do you want to overcome worry? Lord, increase our faith. Or, or pray like the father of the possessed boy said to Jesus in Mark 9, 24. He said, I do believe, help my unbelief. I do believe, help my unbelief. Cry out to God to increase your faith. And then avail yourself of the means God has given to feed your faith. This has been a bit of a running theme lately at the church, but you should know what to do. Renew your mind with God's word. Set your mind on things above. Saturate your mind with God's promises. The spirit will use these to increase your faith and give you that eternal perspective where you you always have the glasses on. You're seeing day-to-day life, the things seen through the lens that which is unseen. You make sense of everything. You find, when you put on the glasses, I don't find any more reasons to worry. The key verse goes, we've read it many times now, Colossians 3, 1 through 3, but it's so precious. He says, therefore, if you have been raised up with Christ, keep seeking the things above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on the things that are on the earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. That's where our real life is. So let's, let's think up there. This is also in perfect conjunction with Philippians 4.8. After verses 6 and 7, give us the short answer to the cure for worry. Be anxious for nothing and everything pray. Trust God. But then it, it tells us how to get there. If you're filling your mind with junk and you're, you're feeding the, the flesh with all the worries of the world, of course you're going to be a mess. But try verse 8 of Philippians 4. It says, finally, brethren, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is of good repute, 
there is anything excellence and anything worthy of praise, dwell on these things. That's what you should be filling your mind with. Go to Christ for more spiritual vision. Let him fix your eyesight so that you can see the two worlds in proper perspective. If you don't want to worry, all you have to do is die. You just got to die. Or should I say, realize you've already died with Christ. You've already conquered death in Christ. You've already risen to new life in Christ. You already have eternal life in Christ. What's there left to worry about? Just believe in him. You know the story of Mary and Martha. Jesus goes to visit their home. And Martha starts freaking out because she is so worried about the affairs of this world. In that case, food. In that moment, nothing mattered more than food. How she, the host, how is she going to feed the Lord and his disciples? But Mary had it figured out. Seek first Christ. Let him feed you first. The rest will take care of itself. He can make food if he really wants to. But what matters more? Seek Christ first. Mary has chosen the better part, Jesus said. That's not the end of the story for Martha, though. Because later, after their brother died, it was to Martha that Jesus gave the secret to overcome all worry. What did he say to her? John eleven twenty five twenty six. Jesus said to her, to that same Martha. He says, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even if he dies. And everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? And that's the question. Do you believe this? But believe in Jesus, grow in faith, and you will find the perfect peace he promises that we can be used for his kingdom and his glory for however many days he's ordained. Let's pray. Our God and Father in heaven, we exalt you this morning as we reflect on your word and the promise of life it beholds and gives to us. And you offer, Lord, eternal life to the fullest. And that's not just a quantity of life. It's not just eternal days, but in Christ, there's a quality of life. This is eternal life, knowing God and Christ whom he has sent. And you offer us a life even now of peace and of joy. You promise it. As we walk by the Spirit, as we're filled with faith, we can access what has been granted to us in the things unseen. We've not seen Christ, but we, we, we have seen him. We thank you for causing the sun to shine in our hearts, to open our eyes to the face of his glory, that we might know you are real. Your word is true. The sun has come. He has risen. He has put away our sin. We are forgiven, and eternity waits for us. Now we can live and serve with all of our effort seeking first your kingdom. I pray these truths resonate in our minds and and empower us to act on them, to live them, that we can grab hold of the life given to us, experience its joy and peace, and just serve you. And for those who don't have that, as they examine themselves, I pray some would come to true faith and come to, to saving faith for the first time, that they've not yet yielded all of their life to the Son. May they do that now as you convict them. And for those with little faith, all of us need to Look in the mirror, be challenged, and how can we seek you more? And we cry out to you, may we fill our, your, uh, our mind with your word. Grow us all in faith that we might all be used, especially in, in dark days, that the light can shine brighter by those who walk with great faith. Not worrying, but seeking, seeking first your kingdom, your righteousness. We do trust you. We thank you for all that you have given to us. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.